Section 85 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The World's Story, Volume 11. Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 85. Uruguay and the Uruguayans. 20th Century. By Francis E. Clarke. As one sails down the great muddy estuary called the River Plate, he sees near the place where it debouches into the Atlantic Ocean a small rise of ground which almost anywhere else would escape observation. Here, however, with perfectly flat shores all about and prairies extending back for hundreds of miles, the one solitary hill assumes an impressiveness out of all proportion to its size. The eye has been so long accustomed to monotonous levels that it hails Cerrito as an alpine wonder. Some old prints presented as a veritable Mont Blanc, dominating the little city that nestles at its base. It evidently appealed to the imagination of Ferdinand Magellan as he sailed by this coast on his great and momentous voyage around the world, for he cried out, I see a mountain, Montevideo. This was on the 15th of January, 1520, and since then everyone who has pronounced the name of the capital of Uruguay has said the same, I see a mountain, for that, of course, is what the name means. Around this famous hill history has been busy ever since, for Montevideo is Uruguay in a more emphatic way than Paris is France or Buenos Aires is the Argentine. In reading the story of Uruguayan history, one is in doubt whether it savors more of comedy or tragedy. The questions at issue seem so trivial, the results of the conflict so bloody, and the stage so small as compared with the world's larger conflicts. The tragic element prevails, however, for the causes of the innumerable wars were very real and very important to the people who took part in them, since men do not bleed and die for what they regard as of no consequence. Another wonderful thing that strikes the student of Uruguayan history is the rapid recuperation of the country after the most disastrous foreign and civil wars. One year we read of the country pillaged, the city of Montevideo bombarded and sacked, thousands of the able-bodied men killed in war, and other thousands self-exiled because of the defeat of their party. The next year we read of a great increase in population, wealth, and governmental revenues, and of unlimited borrowing for internal improvements. The fact is that Uruguay, in spite of her limited territories and population, is so rich in available resources, chiefly cattle and sheep, and has such a commanding and strategic situation on the Atlantic coast that she cannot be kept down either by her own foolish fights or by foreign foes. She is said to have averaged a revolution every two years for three quarters of a century, and yet, though each revolution sets her back a twelve months or so, in the remaining peaceful twelve months she regains the population and wealth she lost and distinctly forges ahead. For a long time her history was wrapped up with that of her powerful neighbors, Brazil on the north and Argentina on the south. She was embroiled in all their wars as well as her own, and was alternately ruled by one or the other. General Don José Hervasio Artigas is considered the founder of the Uruguayan nation, though he was never chosen to office by the people, 
and was disastrously defeated and driven into exile by the Brazilians, an exile in which he spent the last thirty years of his life. He was little more than a guerrilla chief, who for twenty-five years kept the soil of Uruguay and of the Argentine Mesopotamia soaked in blood. But he awakened national aspirations in the hearts of the people, and for this reason he has been canonized as a national hero, and his body buried in state in Montevideo. It was my fortune to be in Montevideo on the 19th of April, an anniversary day familiar to a Massachusetts man, when I found the banks and shops closed, and the city wearing a general holiday air. It could not be, I thought, that six thousand miles away they were celebrating the Concord fight and the Battle of Lexington, and I was soon informed that it was the anniversary of the Landing of the Thirty-Three, a day as religiously observed in Uruguay as the anniversary of the landing of the pilgrims in New England. And who were the famous thirty-three? Merely a band of adventurers who, on the 19th of April, 1825, landed on the shores of a river in the southwestern corner of the country. Uruguay was then under the domination of Brazil, and the people in town and country were restive under her sway. The famous 33 soon rallied to their standard practically all the people. Even the soldiers who were in the pay of the Brazilian government refused to fight their compatriots. Their officers deserted to the enemy, and soon, in spite of desperate efforts on the part of Brazil, Uruguay was free and independent. Argentina favored her cause. The intrepid Irish admiral, William Brown, battered the Brazilian fleet at sea, and in 1828, Brazil, as well as Argentina, gave up its claims to Uruguay and guaranteed her independence for five years. But the distracted little country was not to enjoy a prolonged peace, for in 1832 a civil war broke out, which, with certain periodic breathing spells, may be considered to have lasted ever since. At least the revolutions have been so numerous that they cannot be individually recorded in a short chapter of history, and few of these revolutions have been altogether bloodless. During the later years of the 19th century, however, they lost much of their ferocious character, and were little more than political overturnings, when the outs struggled to get in, and the ins fought to stay in. The Blancos, the aristocratic conservative party, was always opposed by the Colorados, the Democratic Liberal Party recruited largely from the common people and the cowboys of the plains, and in the end the Blancos were defeated and liberal ideas prevailed. In spite of these disturbances, political, martial, and commercial, the country grew in wealth and population, and improved every breathing spell from war to take an advanced step in prosperity. By 1890 the immigration to Uruguay had run up to 20,000 a year, and the population had increased to 700,000, a gain of more than 100 percent in 12 years. In 1897, President Borda was assassinated in the streets of Montevideo, while marching at the head of a religious procession. A grocer's clerk was seen to walk deliberately up to him, press a pistol against his white shirt front, and fire point-blank. Of course the president fell, and he was buried without a post-mortem examination. When the grocer's clerk, who was arrested red-handed, came to be tried for his life, his lawyer pleaded that, according to Uruguayan law, a post-mortem examination was necessary to prove whether the president died from fright, heart disease, or a pistol shot, so his client could not be convicted. 
The jury, strange to say, took the lawyer's view of the case, and condemned the assassin to two years' imprisonment for insulting the president, an insult with a vengeance indeed. A Philadelphia lawyer could not have made a more ingenious plea, or one of our own Tammany juries executed a worse travesty on justice. Montevideo strikes the tourist, fresh from the stare and bustle of mighty Buenos Aires, as rather a sleepy old town, and as somewhat commonplace, if he comes from the north, with the glories of beautiful Rio in his eyes. But its inhabitants are never tired of praising it for its situation, its climate, and its sedate business ways, which, I have been assured more than once, are far superior to the greed for the almighty dollar evinced in Buenos Aires and Rio, and preeminently in the United States. The city has a substantial old-world appearance, and when the new electric streetcars supplant all the old mule cars, as they very likely will before this book is printed, one great want of easy communication will be supplied. There are some fine residences in the outskirts of the city, with beautiful gardens, in which every subtropical plant will grow, and the sea, which surrounds the city on every side but one, brings salubrious breezes and bathing privileges to all, a boon which the Buenos Aires appreciate, for they flock hither in large numbers every summer for their health. Large steamers, compared by one over-partial writer to the Fall River boats between Boston and New York, join the two cities with a nightly service, and the connection between these two great cities of the South, both socially and commercially, is very close. The great wealth of Uruguay outside of Montevideo, as a business and a distributing centre, is found in her flocks and herds which dot her fertile plains. Here is a country which, though it is the smallest in South America, is yet as large as England, and is practically one vast pasture every part of it is easily accessible there are no lofty mountains and few impassable jungles but it is a country of rich luscious grasses where fat cattle and sheep thrive by the million one company alone the famous liebig extract company which manufactures beef tea for the world owns one million and two hundred thousand acres in uruguay argentina and paraguay but largely in the former country on its enormous ranches are 200,000 horned cattle and 60,000 sheep, and over 6 million head of cattle have passed through its hands in the 50 years of its existence. 2,500 workmen are employed in this business, and $17,500,000 have been distributed in dividends. These enormous figures show on what a large scale business is sometimes conducted even in a little republic. The future of Uruguay will doubtless be less stormy than the past, it could hardly be more so. Those who are best informed assure me that there are signs of political stability that have never been seen before, and though there may be periodic revolutions in the years to come, they are not likely to be accompanied by bloody civil wars, or greatly to upset the course of business and social life. End of section 85 this recording is in the public domain.